Well, as I said this morning, we're going to begin beginning a series on, on marriage, and I want to take this first text and read to you from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 through verse 25. It says, Then the Lord God said, It, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man's to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and, the, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You may be seated. This is the reading of God's Word. The first part of this series, what I hope to be able to do is to, to kind of lay what I have called or what I hope we would perceive to be the fundamental nature the very essence, if you cut and reduce marriage down to its, its most smallest point, its most essential point, what is it that we have there? See, I think surprisingly and unfortunately, most of us in this room would have very different answers from the person that is sitting to our, our, our right or to our left. And what I hope to be able to do in this particular sermon is to be able to speak to the fact that there's something about Christian marriage that requires us to confess the fact and acknowledge the fact that at any given time, and oftentimes at the same moment, marriage can be a remarkably good thing and yet a remarkably difficult thing at the very same moment. And oftentimes those occurrences aren't there and we're navigating periods of tremendous prosperity or tremendous happiness and joy. And then at other times, it seems we're kind of in a dearth of that. And if Christianity really doesn't say, okay, that's not real. If, if, you're, if, if you're a serious Christian, if you are studying your Bible, if you're faithful in your support of your church and the community of people that your life is being joined to, then you won't have to go through those things. See, I believe that message, as conveyed by many Christian churches today, is misleading. It's misleading. Over the years, I've tried to be as transparent as I can. Um, my wife and I are coming up on our 37th, um, uh, I think it's 37. Um, I, I did never learn to count that high. Um, yeah, we're coming up on our anniversary, and it, it's been a long time. Um, many of you, you remarked to me uh, kind of a, an idea that I had many years ago that there's kind of a tipping point when you realize you've been married longer than you were single. And it just seems like, wow, the greater part of my life I've spent with you as my wife than I ever spent without you. 
Um, but in the end, I've, I've tried to be transparent uh, over and over again to tell you that those 37 years, while they've been feel, filled with tremendous happiness and joy at times, there were times that were remarkably challenging. And in those challenges, they call, call, you, call into question why it is that you're holding on. And what I hope to do today is to be able to show you that Christianity actually is quite realistic. It's very, uh, it's very transparent in regard to those difficulties. Um, I'd like to begin by pointing out that many researchers today are beginning to really challenge, I mean vehemently challenge, the old statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And the reason that they're doing that is that it wasn't that people were misleading you before, but the way they got to that is they just took the number of marriages in the United States in comparison to the number of divorces in the United States. So if there were 2.4 million marriages last year in the United States and there were 1.2 million divorces, that's 50%. And people are beginning to say that that doesn't help us because we don't know what ages they are, we don't know what's involved in it. And, and, and so this, some of the research I did this week is, is remarkable to me because people are beginning almost to hold it all to, at an arm's position, arm's length, to be able to say, well, we, we don't know anymore. But some of the most concise research that I came across actually came from Scott Stanley, a, a professor at the University of Denver. And he made these statements that kind of sort out some of the ambiguity, some of the fog that we have to look through. And he made these four statements that kind of create a mosaic or an understanding that's somewhat helpful because they said that 50% statistic isn't working anymore. And he said these four things. He said, number one, about 31% of a person's friends, age 35 to 54, who are married, engaged, or cohabiting, have already been previously married. In other words, one out of three of your friends have probably already been married. And that tells you something. It tells you that, that it's, it's, it's a challenging thing, if you're, even if you're a young person. The second thing he says is that people who have been married for many years, my wife went, laughed at me when I told her, told her this the other day. She said, people who have been married for many years, say 35 plus years, and have never been divorced, have almost no chance of the marriage ending in divorce. When I told her that, she said, that doesn't mean you can quit trying. <laughs> and I said, no, I know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that. There's just something in the statistic that's saying if you face that much stuff, you're probably pretty good at facing all this stuff. You know, the third thing that he says that kind of creates a more accurate perspective for us is that he says the rate of divorce per year per 1,000 people has been declining since 1980. In other words, when they look at really the close analysis of the statistics, since 1980 you had kind of the tipping point and it's in decline for a lot of different reasons. Now, the research I went into was fascinating because they said it begins to challenge some of your your thoughts. Um, take, for instance, that um, states that have very highly educated population, uh, populations like Massachusetts, for instance, their divorce rate is far lower than redneck states like Alabama and Missouri and Arkansas 
Louisiana, I could keep going on. Um, and so the, the reason, though, is kind of interesting because they're saying that in those states, people tend to get married when they're really young. Um, me and Tracy got married when I was 19 and she was 18. She wasn't pregnant. Um, you know, Emily wasn't born for another three years. Um, but they said when you get married early, there's a propensity to, to be somewhat naive and Pollyannish. And conversely, in states where you have highly educated population, they have extended educations, and they're not getting married to their late 20s. And because of that, their financial status, um, their maturity level is causing them to enter into marriage with a lot more intelligence than they do in those other states. And the last thing that he says is probably the most significant for you this morning. He just says, a young couple marrying for the first time today. So if you've been married in the last couple of years, this would pertain to you. A young couple marrying for the first time today have a lifetime divorce risk of 40% unless current trends change significantly. So that tells you that just kind of cuts through all the ambiguity. It cuts through some of the moralism that we've heard even in churches. And it just says, okay, that's flat out. Now, Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he, he comes right out and says he, he thinks it's 45%. But I'm going to take Scott Stanley's research and say, if you've been married in the last couple of years, you've got a chance in 4 and 10 that it's not going to end well. So that should get our attention. Now, in spite of all the debate over the last decade and all of this confusion around this, one thing has become particularly clear is that young people are increasingly wary about entering into marriage. In other, in other words, it's becoming an acceptable option for young people that watch the pain and the difficulty, the emotional, even financial hardship that comes with their parents' difficult and painful divorces. The option has become increasingly to just live with someone, to just not get married and just to avoid the difficulty altogether. Now, uh, Tim Keller says this in his book. He said, less than one-third of high school senior girls and only slightly more than a third of the boys seem to believe that marriage is more beneficial to individuals than the alternatives. Yet, this negative attitude is contrary to the available empirical evidence which consistently indicates the substantial personal as well as social benefits of being married compared to staying single or just living with someone. And in other words, there's a rising tide of pessimism in our culture, especially among you younger dudes, where you just, you just don't really believe. In spite of the empirical evidence that's contrary to that conclusion, you just don't believe it's going to turn out okay. Now, I think that's substantial because every single religion that you've ever been exposed to says something about marriage. None of them are devoid of that. And each, and each of us, whether we're religious or not, we have basic defaults or basic ideas that we're holding in our head, even if we have never investigated them. And they, have, they, they pertain to or they have regard to well, what really is it? What is marriage? What's the essence? What, what is the fundamental nature of it? 
And what can I expect from marriage? You see, you're all thinking something. And the question is, is what you are thinking right or wrong? Is it accurate or is it going to mislead you? And so that's the purpose of this study. Over the next few weeks, really a short study. It might be three weeks. It might be four. I don't have any promises. That annoys, like, you know, Jarrett and Zach, you know, because he said, can't you tell us for sure? And I said, no, I can't tell you for sure. And it just, so it's going to be three or four weeks, but hopefully you're going to come out the other side of this and with a clear understanding of why there actually is a very credible kind of base instruction that Christianity has to say in spite of the examples of the patterns that you might know in your own life or see in the lives of other people. So let me start with this first point. That was a long introduction, 15 minutes. Um, this, this first point is explaining our need, our need for companionship. Now, this, I think, you should all be asking. If we're all becoming increasingly wary and we begin to see that, okay, four out of ten of us that go into this are making a mistake, why would you gamble that? Why would you take the risk? And I, th- I think the question has to come out of this need for companionship. Because most of us have to admit there's something inside of us that is compelling us. There's something inside of us that won't let us not make the risk. In other words, it's like walking by a roulette table in Vegas and we're like compelled to play. And so there's something about that. Now, when it comes to romantic relationships, we only have, if you boil it down, as diverse as it might seem in this room, you only have three options. You get married, you don't get married, and you live with someone or you stay single. You get married, you don't get married, but live with someone, or you stay single. Now, if you can think of more options, don't tell me, um, because I'm going to work off those three. Um, The safest option, obviously, is to stay single. Now, there, there are people in this room that are remarkably accomplished as single people. And so we know whatever this principle is about, that explains our need for companionship, it varies from person to person. It, in other words, it's not as, as, as if each of us has you know, this, this single gene. There's people in there that are perfectly fine being single. But most of us are not. Just flat out, most of us are not. Most of us are not built to be single. And so when you begin to look at this, it begins to kind of bring some information that's extremely helpful. And like I said, while some people are remarkably accomplished as as single people, they can live that life without problems, without difficulty, and continue to prosper and to move on, and there doesn't seem to be any deficiency in their life. That's not the norm. That's not the norm. Most of us struggle with the realities of loneliness and the necessity of companionship. The thought of spending the rest of our life alone is just unconscionable. We can't can't really bring ourselves to embrace the fact. There's some of you that are single. There's some of you that are divorced. There's some of you that have been through tremendous difficulty, but you cannot resign yourself to the fact that you're going to be single the rest of your life. And there's a reason for that. And I think it's found in these verses. Now, in verse 18, it says... 
The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, which is a remarkably interesting statement in that this is the first not good statement. In five other situations preceding this, in chapter 1 up to chap- this part of the middle part of chapter 2, every time God completed something, it was like he, when he took his hands off of it, he stepped back and he said, it's good. The Bible just five times says it was good. It was good in chapter 1, verse 31. It says when he's completely done, it was very good. And the statement is actually intensified or it's, it's amplified in the sense that this statement is before chapter 3 when, there's no, when sin actually comes into the world. Because sin gave us a lot of explanation to why the world doesn't work together with us, even the natural order that we find ourselves in, but why there's relational conflict. That all came because of sin. But this statement is made before any of that, which causes many of us, many theologians and commentators, to conclude that what God was saying is that he's not saying, oh, that's bad. He's identifying a design deficiency that he intended to be in the man. And this begins to cause us to understand where this necessity of companionship comes from and what causes some of us, even though we've been through unbelievable breakups, we've been through unbelievable heartaches, we can't quit. It's almost like we have a gambling addiction and it it just throws us into relationship after relationship. But why? And I think the answer is found in this. As I've said, it's, it's interesting that the pronouncement, that God's pronouncement of the man precedes this object lesson. And here's where a lot of instruction comes from. Look at verse 20, 19 and 20. It says this. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? See, most people I ask, they don't know. They look at me and they're just like my grandsons. When I ask them where their dog is, they just say, I don't know. And there's something about this that's, It's interesting because God makes a statement, it is not good that the man should be alone. And then he causes the man basically to sit on a rock and he says, okay, I want you to name all these animals. And all these animals have one after his kind. But for Adam, there isn't one there. So why? The only explanation I can tell you is that he was forcing Adam to be intelligent about his loneliness. It was an object lesson in which he was forcing Adam to recognize in all of the diversity of the creation, whether it's a bird or whether it's an animal, there was one after his kind, but there was not one for Adam. And boom, he puts him to sleep. And then he he creates the woman. And so God created, before he created the woman, he required the man to become conscious that he was alone. There that there was one, there was not a helper suitable for him. Now, what's really interesting about that language is that it begins to point out a lot of different things. And basically, we begin to see something that even if you look into the lives, 
like the the way the original language reads, um, a help like opposite the man is the way the Hebrew reads. Some of the English translations, especially the old ones, used to say a help meet for him, M E E T, and some of us just marred the passage and we used to say a help mate. Let us create a help mate. It never said that. A help that is like opposite the man, like a fitting together in all of his completion. There's something in all of his deficiency that God would bring in the woman that would actually complete him and make him whole. That's an amazing insight. And so our need for companionship was a designed issue. So much so that if you look into the lies, if you think just for a moment of a, a person that you know is single and her, and her life is remarkably accomplished, I would be willing to wager with you that if you think a little bit more deeply about that person's life, you're going to find out that her relationships with her friends, her business constituents, her family are extremely well-developed and they're making a contribution to her life that would cause you to say her life would not be that if it wasn't for her family. Her life would not be that if it were not for her friends. And so there's something here that we all need to negotiate. And it brings us, I think, a compelling and very powerful response or answer for the fact that why do you keep trying? And it's our deep need for companionship. Now, one last point before I get to a couple points of application here is that our own experience tells us that if you're a young woman and you come across some dude that is remarkably independent, he is remarkably self-sufficient, you probably need to really consider whether he's worth pursuing. Because when we come across people that are very... They're fine all by themselves. It almost always indicates they are not a good candidate for a long-term relationship because they don't need you. They don't see this deficiency. And because of it, if they don't need you, you potentially are disposable. You're not looked at as an indispensable fixture that causes that human being to be better with you than without you. So this has a lot of insight. Now, there's two points that I want to make by way of application. I'm going to try to make as much application as I can through this series. And these two points emerge from this first point is that maybe you need to start asking yourself, what are my strengths and weaknesses? I can tell you as a coach, as a counselor, it surprises me how many people come in and they've never done this. They've never taken the time to just sit down and assess their life to say, this is where I'm accomplished. This is where I'm passionate. This is where I'm motivated. But these parts, I kind of suck. What are those for you? And see, a practical, any step that would take you into a relationship, romantic or friendship, has to be preceded by you knowing you. Because if you don't, you're possibly going to be very footloose and fancy-free with the people that you should be drawing in. You should be cultivating, nurturing relationships with people that can and will and are willing to make this contribution in your life where you're not as great as you are you in other areas. 
And all of us have them. There's no perfect profile of behavior or motivation or competence that would cause us to say, I'm it. I'm it. And all of you are privileged to know me because I have all the strengths that you have and none of the weaknesses, and it doesn't matter who you are. There's not a one of you. You should be on medication if you believe that about yourself. And so that would be a good question. Is to ask yourself, well, what really is a personal inventory of my strengths and weaknesses? And secondly, where do I need to actually depend upon another person? Those are not the same issue. In other words, you becoming aware of your deficiencies and your strengths and then actually being able to say, what type of person do I need to depend on? What kind of person would make me a better human being? Find that person. Sacrifice for that person. Bribe that person to make sure that she's willing to do whatever it takes to make you better. But you see, those are, those are not mutually exclusive. They're, there's a lot of coherence between those two things. And as I said, I am amazed at how many people who have never done that. And if you were one of them, Stop and just ask yourself those questions and do a very serious, sincere inventory. Now that brings us to this next point that I, I think is going to be the most helpful of these two this morning. I want to point out our default dispositions towards marriage. There's only two that you are defaulting to today. In other words, this historical moment, the societal, cultural moment that we're living in is converging us into one of two positions. And... It's a little idealistic to think that we're exclusively one or the other. We're probably both of these at times. But you need to be able to ask yourself, well, which one am I? And the two positions are simply this. You are either a consumer in your relationships or you're a contributor. You take or you give. And like I said, it's not going to be consistent all the way through. There's times that I take a lot, but hopefully I'm giving. And so don't get altruistic or idealistic and just be able to kind of say, well, I know I give, so I, 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 I'm probably not a consumer. That, that might be misleading. So I want to kind of nuance, be nuanced enough of this and, and kind of lead this out to where you understand it a little bit better. Over the past 50 years, our society has shifted from entering into marriage as those who are committed to the well-being of our spouse, to those that are essentially committed to the relationship as long as it meets our needs, sexually, emotionally, and economically. In spite of all of our diversity, these basic dispositions that we're going to look at put each of us in the category of being a consumer or a contributor. Now, this first point, I want to unpack this conscientious consumer. Now, Sociologists are, are beginning to point out, and I, this is prevailing research, this isn't just minor. Um, sociologists are pointing out that there's been a tremendous shift in, in, uh, that was the result of commercialization of Western societies. Now, what happened, if you think back, if, if any of you grew up in a, a large city, you can probably remember when you were little the fact that you shopped at the same stores. And it wasn't like these big box stores like, you know, Walmart or Sam's or Costco, these purchasing clubs where you can buy more toilet paper than you're going to use it, you know, in a year unless you have a serious issue. 
um, you know, in one, one, one fell swoop, you know. And that was about the toilet paper. That wasn't about the problem. Maybe both. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But that, my mind went completely blank. And you see, Western societies, they, they shifted. They called it commodification. And so if you could find a similar or better product at the same price or cheaper, no one would blame you for changing. You're going to do it tomorrow. You're, you're looking for gas prices, and you're looking for quality of gas. You should be. If you're not, like my daughter, you might find out that the real cheap stuff is not going to be helpful. Um, you know, but in the end, you've got to say, if I can get the same product or superior for the same cost or less, then who would fault me for changing? Now, that corrupted our relationships. It began to be like an insidious cancer. It was corrosive, and it ate away at how we understood, understood especially romantic relationships. And what happened is it threw us into a, an assessment of, of cost-benefit analysis which meant that we learned this really sophisticated way of, of assessing not only romantic relationships, but business relationships and virtually any other relationships as transactions. And we were looking for the net profit. Did what, at any given time, we could tell you whether what we were required to put into the relationship yielded equal or more benefit. And the moment it didn't, we cut our losses. Think about it. All of you have probably, like boogers, flicked friends from your life because it's like she is a pain. And what happened is there was a time where you met her in graduate school. There was a time that you worked together. And, man, she was remarkable. She had all the answers on the essay. She had all the answers when she was very helpful when you're writing your thesis paper. It was just like this contribution was unbelievable. But as soon as you graduated... She got weird. She was clingy, and it was so needy. And before very long, you found yourself telling her you weren't available when you were. She would, she would invite you to things, and suddenly you, you, were, you were lying because you were done. We've all done that. Now, when we started doing it in romantic relationships, it, like I said, it changed everything. Now, this is where Tim Keller, he uses this example um, in his book, The Meaning for Marriage, and we're going to have more of those downstairs next week. And I'd encourage any of you that want to really go further to pick up that book. It's, it's remarkably helpful. But um, in his book, he uses this example of, he calls it the piece of paper. And most of you, I think all of us can relate to this to some degree. He uses this example of a couple that refuses to get married because they don't know how a piece of paper could make the relationship any better. In fact, they're afraid that it might even endanger it. And all of us, I think, have felt that. I, I've seen young men and young women come and say, oh, I, I can't make up my mind whether I should propose or whether I should accept the proposal. And I'll ask them, and they're just paralyzed because of this issue. Because it's like, why do I want to risk screwing it up? I, I think it was Sex and the City, one of those, one of those movies that, that talked about a couple that was cohabiting that were really, really happy, and they got married, and it really, really screwed it up. That's what this is about. Now, 
this is what, this is what he said. And he, see, he believes the problem, the dilemma that we come to is rooted in our belief that romantic joy is the most important part of marriage. It's the essence. And he said this. He said, one of the most widely held beliefs in our culture today is that romantic love isn't all important. It's all important, is all important in order to have a full life, but that it almost never lasts. A second related belief is that marriage should be based on romantic love. Taken together, these convictions lead, to the, lead us to the conclusion that marriage and romance are essentially incompatible. That, is, that it is cruel to commit people to lifelong connection after the inevitable fading of romantic joy. See what that's saying, what that, that's getting at? It's basically saying... Romantic joy in marriage, 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 is actually going to be, some of you saw that film, right? Um, It's actually like battery acid. And this romantic joy, we can have it without marriage. And the moment that we actually are so insecure that we need, somebody needs to be married because they need a little bit more definition or whatever, the moment we do that, it's like spreading the acid on it. It doesn't look like much at, at first. But man, by the end of the day, it's going to be eating a hole in our arm, eating a hole in our heart. They're incompatible. You see, that's what the culture is saying. And if that's your metric, if that's your conclusion of the fundamental nature of marriage, you're in a cost-benefit analysis, and it's only a matter of time before the romantic joy leaves, and you are betraying yourself if you stay. That is a conscientious consumer, constantly Assessing, am I getting out at least as much or more than I'm putting in? That's the prevailing default. Now, the next position is the one that's fun, because this is where Christianity is not totally unique from other religions, but it creates some very unique tensions. It's called sacrificial contributor. Now, Christianity's understanding of love does not preclude, listen closely, Christianity's understanding of love does not preclude deep emotional connection and passion. In fact, a marriage lacking passion and emotion cannot fulfill its definition, the Bible's definition of love. Nonetheless, it does not make romantic passion the essence of marriage. That's tension. That's tension. Because the Bible, we would wish it would be so simple that the Bible would say, that's not it. But you can't have biblical love without desire, without passion. It has to be there. And if your marriage is without that, you can't get where you need to go. It's a part of it. Now, in philosophy, they call it an accident. Now, an accident is like when my grandkids spilled milk or something like that. That's that's not in philosophy how it's used. Um, You could have paper that is... White and paper that's yellow. See, paperliness isn't in the color. And so yellowness is accidental to paperliness. But what you have here is the Bible saying your desire and whatever marriage is aren't mutually exclusive, but that's not the basis of it either. And I think this is remarkably helpful. Um, Instead, the essence of biblical love is a sacrificial commitment to the good of your spouse. It's a covenant. In that sense, a biblical view of marital love requires us to live in a tension of duty 
that comes from the covenant and desire. We're always going to kind of be holding those two things to say, okay, where's the passion, where's the desire, and where's the duty? Because they always both need to be there. And if you have a marriage without either, it's not biblical love. It just simply isn't. Duty as it pertains to making a sacrifice that's necessary for the good of your spouse and desire that pertains to the maintenance of our passion, the maintenance of those romantic affections and joy. Biblical love does not pit the two against one another. That's a very important point. Now, as I said, this is one of the most distinctive aspects of Christian marriage as traditional societies make the family the family's interest at the highest. And so they make marriage something that you enter into as a transaction for the benefit of your family. And so in those cultures, for instance, if a husband or a wife does something that's detrimental to the family, the transaction is null and void, like shame. If one of the parties in the marriage does something that shames or dishonors the family, the marriage, and oftentimes they would kill the person. And so traditional families, traditional cultures made the family the the transaction. That was the benefit that you entered into marriage. That's what kept you gambling, like I was talking, talking earlier. Now, Western societies, liberal societies, were never like that. What they did is make personal, individual happiness the inducement for the transaction. The ultimate value that would cause you to induce you to say, why the heck would I risk going through what my sister went through or what my friend went through. Why would I do that? Because I don't think of myself so highly that I could actually avoid what's happened to them. But what Western societies did is compel us to say, you might be happy. And so you see what happens. The moment that that transaction fails to yield your personal happiness, you're legitimately out. You're, You're done. Now, In contrast to those ideas, the foundational nature of biblical marriage is a covenant, as I've already said, between a man and a woman. Not a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, look at how it's it's articulated in, in verses 23 and 24. It says, Then the man said... Now, this is Moses... Moses, where the heck did that come from? This is Adam. This is, this is the first mind-blowing, for sure. If your mind has ever been blown, you can totally relate. The, the English can hardly even explain this Hebrew, and this is what it says. The man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now remember, all of the animals and all the birds have been prated before him, and he's seen every one of them in these pairs. And he, he goes to sleep, he wakes up, and God's standing there with this knockout hot wife. And he looks at her, and like I said, the English can hardly even capture the enthusiasm. He is freaking out, and he says, that's me. For the first time, that's me. And this exercise accomplished its purpose. Now, we're gonna, we'll look at it later in the series. I think when the woman is tempted, it, in fact, 1 Timothy 2 says the man was not tempted. And I believe this connection that takes place at this moment in the text is so significant that when Adam is faced, 
he's told by God, the moment you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. He is faced with the woman's death and can't stand it. And he actually ate the fruit to die. The thought of that separation was so great that he couldn't, he couldn't part with her. And so he ate the fruit thinking he was going to die too. It was way worse than that. And so the man reacts, hey, this is bone of my bone and this is the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now, verse 24 is crucial. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, which is really interesting. There are no mothers and fathers now. This is all prophetic. For this reason, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God himself officiated that first wedding and pronounced a principle that is called, it's repeated three times, at least three times in the New Testament. Um, It's called the leave and cleave principle. Now, if you've ever counseled with me in premarital, I always tell the couples that get married here, I want you to go and tell your families, you're not going to see him for six months. The sex is going to be that good for at least that long. So just tell them, you're not going to see us. We're going to spend our time and all of our focus on blending our lives together rather than accepting all of these offers and all of these invitations so that our lives are tensioned. We're just going to concentrate on each other. And it doesn't mean you're not going to see us, but when you see us, it's a benefit. It's a bonus. And I think it helps people. It helps people to do that. Because this principle is so significant, it's so important. Now, in traditional Christian weddings, you hear vertical vows before God and you hear horizontal vows before each other that are actually heard by the people that are closest to both of you in the whole entire world and by God. Now, I want you to consider this vertical aspect of these marriages that you've all listened to first. In a traditional Christian wedding, it is common to hear each spouse ask something. If, if, if I marry you, this is going to happen no matter what. So, but some marriages you go to, they're a little bit flaky, and, and this part isn't a part of it, but it's supposed to be. Now, the vertical part sounds kind of like this. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? Will you love her, comfort her, protect and provide for her? Will you honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, keep keeping yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live. And each spouse will say, I will, I do, and usually it's kind of fluttering in their voice by that time. But you see, they're not speaking to each other. Technically, they're answering the questions of the minister. It's vertical. They're making that promise to God first, not to each other. Then... Based on that vertical affirmation, then the minister will usually say, okay, now face each other. And in the wedding, this is where the bride will take her bouquet and hand it off. And they'll take each other by the hands and stare each other in the eyes. And you can feel the Twitter patient in the room just boiling over. And then it sounds like this. The minister will have them address each other and say something like this. I take you to be my lawful and wedded husband. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife in plenty and in want and joy and sorrow in sickness and in health as long as, as we both shall live. Now, for some of you, you just think it's redundant. 
But it's very significant. Because in traditional Christian weddings, it's marking the vertical promise to God. And if a minister's done his job, he's actually said, we are gathered together today in the sight of God and these witnesses. And the vertical takes place first and then the horizontal. They get to hear each other promise before God, before all of their friends and family, all those people that are going to re- eat all the expensive food in a few moments. They're saying, listen to me, promise to God and to her, I'm yours. In the diversity of the vows, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. What are those saying? They're saying that is a bandwidth of experience in life in I promise to love you whether we're poor or whether we're rich, whether we're sick or whether we're healthy. When it goes well and when it goes terribly, I will love you before God and everyone else in this room. Now that's what made that old-fashioned statement that everybody laughs at because I still use it to say... Look, you are a community that is promising to be there when this is not good, when it's poor and when it's sick. So is there anyone in this room that isn't joining this community? Speak now or shut up forever. That's not how it went. It went forever hold your peace, but that's old-fashioned. It's like you need to say something now because you need to break rank with us and so we can tell who you are because you're not a part of the rest of our team. The rest of us are committed to hold them accountable, to speak into their life, to provide counsel and direction and support when all of these things break down, and they will. They need us. And we're committing to do that. Speak now. We'll forever hold your peace. Having heard that, that woman can say, my life, all of it, is yours. And he can say, my life, all that it is and ever will be, is yours as well. See, you can't do that without covenant. You'd be insane to do that without covenant. Now next week we're going to talk about sex and money. And how this implicates that. But that's for next week. Let me give you two practical applications of this. And before I do, let let me tell you, the Bible is not naive. It does not guarantee that if you put yourself in your marriage all the way, that your marriage is only going to be filled with bliss. If that's true, I got screwed. Because it doesn't matter how much I pray and how much I study. It's hard. It's challenging. And as much as I got cheated, my wife got cheated way more. What she's put up is ten times with what I've put up with. So it's not about that. The Bible doesn't promise us that our marriages are going to be filled with bliss. In fact, it sets very clearly the instruction that would allow for a divorce and a remarriage based on a defilement of the marriage bed that's not repented of or willful desertion. Those are situations that God says, you're free. You're free from the covenant and you're free to re-enter into a new one. So there's something about this that's painfully transparent and real. Now the practical application in this real quickly is simply this. You need to ask yourself, what is my default position? 
because many of you haven't asked yourself that. And it doesn't matter what it was 37 years ago for me. What is my default position now? Because if you went into marriage in a biblical covenant and somehow you changed your mind along the way and now you're measuring it by a different yardstick and it's net profit, you need to state that. You need to tell your spouse that you're no longer standing the way you were because you broke your vows. If you entered into it that way and now it's commodified and it's only conscientious consumption that's going to determine whether you stay in or not, I think your spouse at least needs to know that. Or am I a person that's a conscientious consumer in general? Am I a person that is actually a sacrificial contributor in general? This last point is simply this. Am I willing to change? I hope you are. The scripture is remarkable in the, the broadness of the door to truth. And if you're willing to change, change. Our counseling center is remarkable in how it helps people figure this out. And if you're at a point that you don't want your marriage to crash and burn, do something about it. If you're willing to say, I don't want to live like this anymore, do something about it before it hits the wall. State your intention to your spouse. Ask yourself the very difficult question, what would that change look like? Because it's one thing for you to say, oh, I'll change. But it's something else for you to say, I am committing to this kind of a change. This is what it will look like, or I suck. You see, that takes courage. That takes intentionality and significant intelligence. Now, the last thing I'll say is that Paul says something remarkable in Ephesians chapter 5. He likens marriage to the pattern of Jesus and his church. Poof, nobody lives like that quite. But the reason he says that is marriage becomes like a, a megaphone that is coming out more of your actions than your mouth. And it's basically telling the world what happens when someone when another human being completely surrenders her life to me, is she better or is she worse? What happens if some young man is fortunate enough to surrender his life to me without definition, without any reservations? Will his life be better with me in it than without me. That's the kind of testimony it's supposed to be. I hope that was helpful today. Let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. That was probably the most time that I've ever wanted it to come up. There are no questions today. <laughs> um, I am a very independent person and I have been married for a long time. It causes conflict in our marriage so what do you recommend? That one is like really pretty easy. Don't be so independent. <laughs> I don't want to be painfully easy, but if you're so independent that your life has broke from a strategy of interdependence on each other, then develop a new strategy. The, number, the second highest rate, the 
highest rate of divorce occurs within the first two years. The second highest rate of divorce, which this is beginning to change too, occurs between 18 and 20 years. That's because couples really don't have the courage to break up. And so they stay together for the sake of the kids, which really is not that healthy for the kids. And it's between 18 and, 21, 18 and 20 years when the kids leave for college. Now, my point in this is this, is that what happens is that people, your lives are being drawn together. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And what's pulling you together as time goes by is going to tear you apart. And so you, once you figure that out, you either change your heart and the things that you're striving for by changing your goals and strategy, or you're going to put each other to death a little bit at a time. So if your life is too independent, repent. That's not hard. Make your life more dependent on your spouse. The fact is, if you're independent, you're actually telling your spouse, I don't really need you. I can do my life very well without you, thank you. And that's not true. If you've come to that conclusion, you need to change your mind. And if you can't do that on your own, come and talk to me. I'm more than willing to try to convince you. Okay? Next question. If I think I may be one of the most self-sufficient people who isn't worth pursuing because I don't need anyone. Boy, that's pretty transparent. Um, What does God say about changing this so I am approachable? Did the same person send this question? I, I don't mean any offense, and I appreciate every question that you guys text in. I, hopefully this is somebody online so you're not embarrassed too much. You sound stuck up. The longer I live, the less I know and can do well. When I was young, I was invincible. I had all of the answers. And the older I get, the wiser my parents have become. The older I get, the more hesitant I am to do things because I don't know what I thought I did. I'm not as competent as I thought I once was. And time will beat that crap right out of you. Time and God loves us too much to let us think we don't need anyone, that I can do this all by myself. It's simply not true. Last question. With friends who have newer marriages, how would you recommend encouraging them? That's a very good question. Um, First, let your life be engaged with each other so that when you speak, there's weight. Because some of us want to be able to run in at the last moment and stop things from happening. We want to be able to just jump in and fix stuff. But we don't have the relational credit to do that. And people really don't care because we've never cultivated our voice in their life. They, they know we don't really know. You see, in counseling, it's really difficult for me. Man, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, try. Apply yourself to a depth of a relationship that will make a difference. And it will, it will help. Okay, let me pray. Um, the band's going to come up and we're going to close. Father, I, I just ask that, man, today, I, I just, I pray for the visitors today. They've been drugged over kind of a, a dirt road. Um, they heard us talk and admit that even leaders in this church have problems. 
and their families are not immune from difficulty. And maybe that will scare some of them away. I hope it doesn't because I think it's an endearing thing for us to be honest because every one of us in this room roughly has one out of three friends that has gone through a divorce. And for us to say, ah, that should never happen, that should never happen, not at that level, is naive. And so I just pray that we would be faithful to support a family that really needs us at this time in our prayer and just availability. Um, but beyond this, as we've launched into this service, help us so that we understand biblical love and biblical marriage. I pray that you would do that in the weeks to come. Help us now as we partake of communion and finish our worship together. Attend it, we pray. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.